Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks, Kaylee. Yes, we are excited to have with us John Porcari, the port envoy to the Biden-Harris Supply Chain Disruptions Task Force. And Mr. Porcari previously served as Deputy Secretary and Chief Operating Officer of the U.S. Department of Transportation in the Obama administration. So, Mr. Bakari, thank you for joining us live this morning and helping us to kick off our Global Supply Chain Week. Welcome. Thanks, John. It's my pleasure. Great. Well, um, yes. No, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what I was going to ask was, uh, so the title of our discussion is Have Supply Chain Disruptions uh, Peaked? So, so let's open with that question. Um, as, as one of the leaders of the supply chain task force, what, what is the general state of supply chains right now? And, and have the disruptions, in fact, peaked? Uh, well, we certainly hope the disruptions have peaked. Uh, there are some indications that, that that's the case. There's been uh, a lot of work on the operations side throughout the supply chain, but starting with the ports to in, increase fluidity and velocity. I think we've had some real successes uh, with that. Uh, whether it's the ports of uh, Los Angeles and Long Beach, uh, Savannah, uh, New York, New Jersey, Houston, and others. Uh, uh, but uh, I think the underlying reality is today's volumes are the floor, not the ceiling. And uh, for a goods movement chain that's moving roughly 20% more goods than it did before the pandemic, we need to adjust to this new reality and we need to, to take out some of the single points of failure uh, that have plagued us in the goods movement chain. Okay, well, and I want, and I want to uh, pivot real quick, uh, Mr. Porcari, to a um, before we get back to to, to the ports, um, the uh, a, a cross border issue that we're seeing, a supply chain issue that developed over the last uh, three weeks or so um, at the Canadian U.S. border, as you know, um, which it began as a convoy of truckers that descended upon Ottawa to protest the cross border vaccine mandates. Um, over the weekend, as you saw in our in our news um, lineup, there there was the progress made in opening the Ambassador Bridge, um, which had been blocked for a week or so. But it, but it might take longer for these automotive supply chains to sort of recover from that, and, and including an uptick in uh, transportation costs that, that 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 has caused. DHS has been tracking the potential for a similar trucking convoy and protest in support of 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 that of the Canadian protest down to descend in Washington in a few weeks, um, potentially blocking other U.S. cities along the way. So what, what are your concerns about the potential for this to add to what's already on, you know, what's already on your plate in terms of supply chain disruptions here in the U.S.? Well, I think the closure of the Ambassador Bridge uh, highlights what I just mentioned, which is that there are a number of single points of failure uh, in the goods supply chain. If you know the auto industry and the uh, the supply network on both sides of the border that support it. Uh, the uh, Ambassador Bridge is literally the lifeblood of, of that supply chain. Uh, you have uh, detours uh, to the west and to the east, Blue Water Bridge and the Peace Bridge. Each are a five-plus-hour detour. Uh, the um, uh, vehicular tunnel uh, between Detroit and Windsor can't accommodate uh, uh, tractor trailers. So uh, the, uh, the building of the Gordie Howe Bridge is one example of where you want to re, uh, eliminate those single points of failure. Uh, that may be a, a very high profile and obvious one, but there are many others uh, in the United States. And uh, in, on the good news side, the bipartisan infrastructure law uh, provides the public funding 
to eliminate uh, uh, many of those through construction projects. We expect the private sector to co-fund a number of projects as well that will uh, uh, help eliminate those single points of failure. Sure, and I just want to press you a little, a little, a little bit more on on the um, what, what the potential for down here is. There, is there, it, 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 for a, um, a protest disruption, if it were to happen, how would what are the options that the administration would have to deal with that? Well, it's something that uh, uh, we're looking at very carefully right now. Department of Homeland Security uh, and uh, other agencies. Uh, the coordination issues between the federal level uh, and local level with law enforcement are uh, one of the obvious places uh, uh, where coordination is needed and, in fact, is is happening right now. Uh, it's also uh, important to point out uh, that the uh, commercial vehicle enforcement units of uh, many of the state highway patrols and state uh, 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 police would play an important role in that as well. So uh, you, you prepare for any eventuality. Uh, I would uh, point out that we've been working very closely with the trucking industry uh, on uh, a number of operational and longer term issues, uh, including the shortage of drivers and uh, uh, those longer term uh, changes, I think, are important to improve working conditions in the industry. Uh, which are one of the underlying issues, uh, I believe, in, in what you're seeing in Canada. I, I see. I see. Um, yeah, well, I, I wanted to touch back on the, 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 the truck, the truck, uh, the driver issue, too, in a minute. But so going back to the ports, um, un, under your guidance, USDA and the Port of Oakland recently announced the, the, the new 25 acre um, export state, staging facility there at the Port of Oakland. Uh, we, we were hearing concerns from the drayage operators in that area uh, that it's not so much about getting space for for empties on the land side, but that they're they're still having problems getting the empties from the ocean carriers to begin with, and that there's and that the, the, the carriers are still prioritizing those empties for really refilling overseas instead of refilling for U.S. exports. So, uh, how convinced are you, Mr. Bercari, on on that these these pop up yards? will make a difference? Well, we, we think Oakland's a good example of uh, what can be done. Uh, as you know, there are also uh, interior pop-up sites that the Port of Savannah has up and running uh, that help both imports and exports. Uh, there's no doubt the underlying economic reality uh, is is uh, still problematic. So uh, it's, it's uh, more valuable to get a container back to its point of origin as quickly as possible rather than fill it with agricultural uh, export goods. We're working directly with the ocean carriers, uh, and uh, you probably saw that uh, Secretaries uh, Judge and Vilsack jointly uh, sent uh, a letter to the ocean carriers last month, uh, uh, pushing them uh, to, to make sure that they don't disadvantage U.S. exports. Uh, it's, um, it's both a record year for U.S. agricultural exports overall, uh, but at the same time, containerized exports, uh, which are a really important high value subset of the um, overall agricultural exports, are down significantly. And in the Port of Oakland, uh, over the last uh, five months last fall, uh, they were down 34 percent. So we're working directly with the ocean carriers, uh, with ports, uh, w- with the terminal operators uh, and everyone else in the ecosystem uh, uh, for goods movement. And is the. The container yard, the export container yard at Oakland, is that, is that still 
set to go Mar- March 1st, I believe? Yeah, it will be the first week of March. Uh, and uh, uh, work is uh, underway, um, for example, making sure that there's enough plugins for reefers uh, uh, on site. Um, and so you can pre-chill uh, containers for the export trip. Uh, but um, we're uh, working on a daily basis, actually, with uh, leadership at the Port of Oakland, uh, the California Department of Agriculture and Markets, and others. Uh, and uh, to be clear, we want this to be the first of uh, uh, of many using the Commodity Credit Corporation at USDA uh, as a way to uh, help co-fund uh, uh, some of the investments uh, and provide a short-term subsidy for exports. And uh, we had a webinar, for example, with the American Association of uh, Ports Authorities last week with uh, all the interested ports in the U.S. Uh, showing them how they can actually do the same thing. What, so, and do you have, you mentioned others, what's what's the next one that you're planning to, to, to set up? What, which port will that be? Well, we, we have multiple ports that are actually uh, in the process of uh, 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 putting a, a proposal together right now. Um, we'll have something to announce shortly, but at this point, um, uh, it's a bit of a foot race between a couple of ports as to uh, who is going to be the next one. Understood, understood. Um, wanted to get to some legislation. The um, Ocean Shipping Reform Act, as you know, was introduced um, it back last fall. President Biden had endorsed this with this act, and um, since the bill was introduced last fall. We, we've um, yeah, we've had the Senate version, version which which broadly parallels the House version, but it also avoids um, some of what the ocean carriers consider to be the some 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 pretty damaging overreach that they see in the House bill, which, which basically they say the carriers say puts the FMC in the position of second guessing how the ch- carriers choose to load cargo. Um, in terms of imports and export capacity, does the administration support the more restrictive House bill or or more of a compromise between these two bills? We're actually working with all parties uh, on this and believe that first and foremost, uh, the Federal Maritime Commission uh, does need some strengthened authorities. Uh, it needs increased budgetary authority and it needs the ability to um, uh, respond to a marketplace that's very different uh, than the one it was originally designed for. Uh, so it, it's it's important that the uh, FMC be the centerpiece of uh, uh, the, the work that's being done. Uh, some of the specifics of the legislation, uh, we're working with parties right now, and and uh, uh, the but the desire is to make sure that um, uh, the United States is not disadvantaged in any way. Uh, by uh, this global trade, and that exports uh, are given equal emphasis uh, as well as imports. And 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 Mr. Burkar, you mentioned you're working with all the parties in this that the Ocean Shipping Reform Act um, uh, impacts the, the the carriers. Again, going back to the carriers, they, they see the the con- conflicting mandates coming from the administration that is getting the empty containers off the docks and repositioned back to Asia for unloading for on, on the one hand, and at the same time, making sure that the carriers are maximizing the number of empties that they can make available to U.S. exporters. What is your vision for how the ocean carriers should can balance those two priorities that they see coming from the administration? I mean, especially when there's 
uh, uh, you have a lot of landslide congestion that makes things even more difficult. Yeah, there there certainly is a lot of landslide congestion, and the whole point is to use the really precious uh, dock real estate of ports throughout the country more efficiently. Um, if you look at uh, uh, the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, where we've had uh, a very successful potential import long dwell container fee that's that's reduced uh, long dwelling containers by over 50% uh, since uh, it was put in place. And it's important to point out that the fee's never actually been levied. It's uh, the authority is there to do it. Uh, we're looking at the same on the export side on the uh, and empties. And uh, we have a working group uh, with all the stakeholders of both of those ports involved and the proposal that's on the table right now uh, actually uh, credits ocean carriers for exports. So uh, there, it is not empties versus U.S. exports. They're actually uh, being specifically credited for U.S. exports and incentivized uh, to uh, export U.S. goods. For, right. That's right. Um, but but the but the, but again, the point the point of the carriers is, is that they're seeing conflicting mandates here, and I'm I'm wondering if that's if, if, if you're getting that reflected back to you in your talks with them and, and how they can actually do this operation. Uh, the, the ocean carriers uh, on, on a one-on-one -on -one basis have been very um, collaborative and uh, in, in working on this. Uh, I, I would point out that there is uh, the operational work at uh, Los Angeles and Long Beach does bear at least indirectly on the uh, legislation pending in Congress. Uh, the ocean carriers have a, an opportunity at LA and Long Beach to show uh, that that they can collaborate, they can be helpful, uh, and they can make sure that U.S. exports are not disadvantaged. And they can show that on a daily operational basis uh, through the overmatch proposal that's that's on the table right now. Um, but but if you want to see a um, real life daily operational um, implementation, uh, watch what's going on uh, with the reduction of uh, empties uh, while sim simultaneously pushing exports uh, at those two ports. Um, and again, that's uh, that's a, uh, something that Congress can watch directly uh, and, and see how it works. Okay, fair enough. I wanted to turn to to uh, labor and, and, and automation. The port automation is going to be a big factor in the upcoming labor negotiations on the on the West Coast ports. And the Biden administration administration is a, a, a big supporter of labor. Um, but where, where do you see the balance, Mr. Bercari, between pushing ports and terminal operators to operate 24-7 and automate their terminals while at the same time supporting the concerns that the Longshore Union has about running 24-7 and their, and their pushback on automation? Well, well, these things are not irreconcilable. Uh, I, I should first note that through the pandemic, uh, labor was on the front lines. I mean, it's a new definition of frontline workers, and uh, um, we lost a number of uh, longshore workers uh, to uh, COVID. Um, but uh, what people are missing in this discussion that I think we should focus on is the training component. Uh, this, uh, uh, with today's and tomorrow's technology, uh, there's much more in the way of training that's actually required uh, for longshore workers. Uh, you, you see this playing out right now, again, at Los Angeles and Long Beach, uh, where there's a proposal for a training center that would be uh, for both ports, partly funded by the state of California, um, uh, by the Pacific Maritime Association. Um, but the idea would be that um, 
the technologies that are here and that are coming uh, are are ones that require uh, much more in the way of of training than has been true in the past. And you so um, you'll see uh, labor and management actually cooperating uh, in that uh, um, training center, working together for the workforce of the future. So uh, it, this is not something that. Uh, uh, people should be afraid of. We should we should make sure that we're um, looking uh, to the future, and the training component is one place where again you'll see this uh, play out in the short term, and uh, uh, the whole industry would benefit. So, so is is that enough though? To, so that you're 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 convinced that there's not the negotiations aren't going to be contentious coming up around around automation. I, I uh, I'm not going to characterize and advance the um, negotiations, and I certainly don't want to step into the role that uh, e- either uh, management or labor has here. Uh, the federal government's role, what's important to point out, is essentially uh, as a, a convener and honest broker uh, here that um, uh, assists both parties. Um, and uh, if if you followed uh, these negotiations in the past, um, it, it's clear that there's an important role that the federal government uh, can play a, as that uh, honest broker and and, and will um, uh, if needed going forward. Okay, sure. Uh, the um, so on, on Friday, the chairman of the Federal Mar- Maritime Commission, uh, Dan Maffei, he announced that he would like to um, investigate uh, PurePass um, and whether it's actually doing the job it was set up to do, which is which is to smooth out the supply chain at the ports of LA and Long Beach by incentivizing the off-peak hours. Um, are, are you concerned that Peer Pass is not working as it should and at the same time might be actually profiting off the importers by, by making more money than it, than it costs to operate the night gates, which is, which is what the um, FMCSA, FMC chairman uh, said he is concerned about? Well, first, I applaud Chairman Maffei for uh, asking questions that should have been asked a long time ago uh, and uh, acknowledging that the Federal Maritime Commission uh, has a role here because they've granted limited antitrust uh, immunity to, uh, to PeerPass, to WIC Matoa. Um, I, I do have concerns. Uh, and if the original premise, the original purpose uh, was to reduce uh, emissions uh, uh, by uh, queued vehicles and eliminating that congestion, uh, it's not at all clear that that's what's happening today. Uh, it, it is not uh, at all clear um, that uh, Pure Pass uh, is anything more uh, than an opportunity to uh, actually raise more revenue uh, for the uh, terminal operators. So uh, the finances, the operation of WIC Matoa, the parent organization, are op- opaque. There's never been an actual outside audit, uh, it's, uh, w- which is pretty alarming, uh, and uh, it, it is time to ask these questions. So I, I think uh, Chairman Maffei uh, was right to raise the issue, uh, and uh, I would urge the members of WICMATOA uh, uh, that operate the PeerPass system to, to um, do this in a transparent way that uh, everyone uh, in the goods movement chain uh, can actually see and and to get back to the original purpose, uh, uh, if indeed that's still a valid one uh, that PeerPass can help with. Understood. Um, and I want to go also uh, to to truck driver pay, which you brought up earlier. 
Um, the, the, the Biden administration has, has talked about efforts to retain truck drivers and improve their working conditions and how they're compensated. With the Labor Department and DOT working together, as they have been over the last few months, would, would the administration support lifting the exemption in the wage laws that allow employers to, to avoid paying their drivers by the hour, which is, which, which is something that the small business uh, owner operators would like to see. Uh, I, I mean, in, in other words, place the same hourly pay requirements on the trucking industry as, as there are for other industry sectors. I, I can't uh, uh, comment on that directly. The Secretary of Labor, Secretary Walsh, uh, w- would have to uh, comment on that. What I can tell you uh, is that the trucking action plan uh, that jointly um, the Departments of Labor, Transportation, uh, and the White House have put together uh, really starts to get to some of the core issues. Uh, you know, it's a very high turnover uh, industry. Uh, you know, it's one where the barriers to entry uh, uh, for uh, individuals uh, to obtain their commercial driver's license are actually higher than it should be. Uh, if you have to pay for your own training, essentially, to get the CDL uh, before you can uh, enter the industry, part of the trucking action plan uh, is actually internships uh, where the trucking companies are paying for that. Um, uh, and uh, uh, th- that's one way to make it easier for drivers to um, enter the profession, uh, retaining them uh, th- through um, wages and benefits and working conditions is, is an important part as well. And uh, uh, But I'll let Secretary Walsh, uh, uh, to the extent that uh, uh, he wants to actually comment on that. Sure, fair, fair enough. And and so just to sort of wrap up, uh, Mr. Bakari, um, so, and kind of going to wh- where we started a little bit, but the... The supply chain, I wanted to kind of ask about supply chain task force longevity, basically. Um, you know, task forces are set up to deal with a certain task, hence the name. Um, but wh- where is the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of this task force? Will, 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 will you and the rest of the task force still be needed at this time next year, for example? Or or will, will the situation on the ground, it, do you think, based from where you sit now, um, uh, uh, the situation on the ground and the water, I guess, would, would it be um, allow the supply chain task force basically to be disbanded by this time next year? Well, it, it's I, I don't know the exact time frame, but I would say, uh, John, for, for myself, I, I think of myself as a first responder. Uh, I was uh, asked to come in on a temporary basis uh, and work through some of the operational issues uh, and work, and then lay the groundwork for some more permanent changes. Uh, including more capability and capacity on the federal government side to deal with supply chain issues. Uh, That uh, more permanent capacity is largely, not entirely, but largely in place now. So that longer term work uh, has been underway for uh, a while. Um, The supply chain task force itself uh, continues to work on other issues uh, like semiconductor availability, for example, um, and then the in the Department of Commerce, uh, the Advisory Committee on Supply Chain Competitiveness, which is a, a CEO level uh, uh, working group uh, of uh, private sector supply chain leaders, has actually been reconstituted uh, with um, uh, uh, very senior level representation uh, again CEO level, um, but they will be working on some of the longer term issues uh, in a, a collaborative way. It's a way for industry. To work directly with the federal government on that. So 
look for the Commerce Department Advisory Committee on Supply Chain Competitiveness to be one of the primary vehicles, as it were, to uh, um, institute some of these long-term changes that I mentioned. Uh, but uh, from day one, uh, my focus has been uh, work on short-term operational issues, uh, but build the foundation for longer-term changes in the future. So in other words, you might not be there you might not be there on the task force if, if you see your job as being done in the short term. Correct. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you, Mr. Porcari. And, and thank you again for um, sharing your insights with us uh, uh, this morning. And, and best of luck to you and the administration for their for success this year. Thanks, John. And thanks for all that you do. Take care, everybody. Thanks. And thanks again, everyone, for joining us uh, at this opening keynote. And enjoy the rest of Global Supply Chain Week. <laughs>